make upgrading your home security a priority this October. All Ring devices, cameras, video doorbells and alarm systems take less than 15 minutes to install. Ring products allow you to monitor every corner of your home from your phone, no matter where you are. With cameras in strategic locations, you can create a ring of security around your property. Keep an eye on what's most valuable to you, because with Ring, you're always home. She knows. She hadn't seen it before. Not in the way she'd seen it in the others. The men who she'd arrested and put behind bars for doing exactly the same thing he was doing at that very moment. Somehow, he'd seemed different. Less threatening. More filled with possibilities for change. But now she knows. He was never any different. If anything, he may have been worse. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 133, The Murder of Charlene Joester. Now it's time for my tip about the latest series to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And from Monday the 6th of November, be sure to catch season 4 of Accident, Suicide or Murder. This channel premiere takes viewers through the riveting twists and turns of real-life cases involving suspicious deaths. Each hour-long episode traces the evolution of the investigation, from the discovery of the victim through evidence gathering, to the efforts of detectives and family members to expose the truth. You can watch Accident, Suicide or Murder from Monday the 6th of November at 7pm, every weeknight until the 1st of December on DSTV Channel 170 and Starsat 222. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. 
Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Lizelle Maver, Madeleine Duplessis, and Tam. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Research for this episode actually started in May last year, when Charlene's sister, Alicia, contacted me for the first time. At this time, the case was in the High Court, and Alicia Euster really felt as though they were up against the system a bit. Things did get better after that, and finally in October, their family would see some form of justice. And I've been meaning to cover Charlene's case since then, and finally kicked my own butt into gear this week. In that period, Charlene's case was covered on Heiskenuit Vara Levenstramus, Fleers in Blut. Alicia and her twin sister Alexa both appeared in that episode and spoke movingly about their sister. I've used that episode as one of my sources. In addition to that, I also used court documents supplied by the family, as well as a few media articles. In all of these sources, Charlene is referred to by her last married surname, which is October. For reasons I'll discuss later, Alicia and I decided that we would refer to Charlene by her maiden name in this episode, which is Yusta. So, let's get into episode 133, The Murder of Charlene Yusta. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Charlene Joester grew up with her parents and siblings in Stellenbosch. The family consisted of three sisters, twins Alexa and Alicia, and Charlene, and three brothers. Charlene was the oldest sibling, and her sisters would say that she really was very much like a parent figure to them growing up. When their parents were working or otherwise engaged, Charlene would be in charge, and she continued on with that role throughout her life, with her siblings often coming to her for advice and guidance, even as they all grew up and followed their own paths. Charlene became an officer with the South African Police Service and very quickly earned respect and rank in her career. She worked in the intelligence unit and would eventually serve as the station commander in a small town called Elam. Elam is a village on the Agalis Plain in the Western Cape of South Africa. It's about two hours from Stellenbosch, where Charlene grew up. While Charlene was building a successful career in the SAPS, she was also building a family of her own. She married her first husband in her early 20s, and they had two sons together, Ethan in 1997 and Nathan in 2002. Unfortunately, Charlene's first marriage broke down when her sons were relatively young, and she and her boys lived on their own for some time. And then, in 2007, 
Charlene was in the garden of her home one day when she looked over at her neighbor's property where he was having some work done on his thatched roof and met eyes with Ashley October. Ashley October was an attractive and charming young man. He was also a decade younger than Charlene, but the pair soon started visiting and the relationship blossomed. Those around Charlene and her boys became aware pretty early on that Ashley was behaving in an abusive manner toward Charlene and being overly strict with her boys. Her sisters say that they had seen bruises on her arms. They knew she did bruise easily, and they never quite knew for sure how bad the situation was. Because, as is so common with the abuse cycle, Ashley would very quickly love bomb and gaslight Charlene back into the relationship, and the cycle would begin again. What many people would point out, and certainly is something we need to address, is that Charlene was a police officer. She'd left the service after 20 years, but she had worked at some of the highest local levels, and she had dealt with numerous domestic violence victims. She understood the cycle, and she had seen the sometimes fatal results of abuse. So many have asked, why did she not leave Ashley immediately when he became abusive? And I'd like us to be clear on this. We can ask why as a genuine question, because it seems strange. But this is essentially victim-blaming. Charlene loved Ashley, and no one, no matter how educated, how informed, or how much experience they have with these type of relationships, is immune to a coercive of control and abuse. No one. Not lawyers, or psychologists, or university professors or even police officers, who've seen the sometimes horrific end results of these situations. No one. And yes, Charlene was a police officer for 20 years, but she was also a woman, and a human being, who really wanted her relationship to work, and who, I'm sure, heard many times from Ashley that he would change, and really really wanted to believe him. But as will become very apparent going forward, leaving would make very little difference in the end. In 2008, Charlene gave birth to her first child with Ashley. They held a wedding ceremony to cement their relationship in Khan's Bay, and her sister Alexa says that she sat down in front of Charlene that night before her wedding and asked her if she really wanted to marry Ashley. Despite it being the night before their wedding, Ashley had behaved very poorly, and certainly not treated Charlene as the woman he loved and wanted to marry the following day. But Charlene's mind was set, and the next day, she became Mrs. October. The couple had moved into a home that Ashley owned in Elam, He'd received the house and the land it was on as part of belonging to the Moravian church that played a huge role in Elam. The town itself had been established as a Moravian mission and the church continued to form the centre of the town around which everything else revolved and many of the properties and land in the town 
was owned by the church. Ashley and Charlene's marriage continued to be challenging and abusive, but her sisters say that her children were always her major focus, and she poured an incredible amount of energy into ensuring that they were happy and doing well. In 2011, Charlene gave birth to her second child with Ashley. Although the following information would only emerge many years later, I'm going to share it with you now in chronological order, because I feel it's important to understand how and when these things happened. A man called Ashley Kerr was working for Ashley October in his thatched roof business in 2011. Kerr would later testify that in the second half of 2011, he'd gone with Ashley to a landfill to dispose of some rubbish from the job they were working on, and while they were there, Ashley had asked him to kill his wife, Charlene. Now, please keep in mind that this would have happened very soon after Charlene had given birth to Ashley's second child with her. Kerr claimed that he'd been horrified at the proposition and immediately refused. Ashley had tried to convince him by saying that there was a life insurance policy that would pay out on Charlene's life and he would pay him well for the job. Ashley even explained to Kerr that he could enter the house through a small window at the back of the property, which was always open, and then he should stab Charlene and slit her throat. Kerr believed that Ashley had chosen him to approach because at the time he was struggling with a substance use disorder, and Ashley would have known that a large amount of money would have been appealing to him. He, however, refused and told Ashley that he was mad, and he would not do it. Ashley backed off, and never brought the matter up again. Kerr had, at the time, told multiple people about what Ashley had asked him to do, and he would later say that quite a few people in Elam knew about the offer he'd been made. No one in this instance, unfortunately, told Charlene. Ashley, though, was not phased and the following year he approached another young man who was also dealing with substance use issues at the time, Regan Zitzman. Regan was also working for Ashley, and it was when they were sleeping away from Elam for a few nights working on a job that Ashley had asked him to kill Charlene. In the days running up to this request, Zitzman said that Ashley had been giving him money to buy drugs after they were finished working each night. When his boss came up with the offer, it was clear he'd been buttering him up. Again, Ashley mentioned that there was an insurance policy that would pay out on Charlene's life, and he would give Zitzman 30 to 40,000 rand for the job. Revoltingly, Ashley told Zitzman that he should make it look like a sexually motivated murder and slit Charlene's throat, or he could make it look like a suicide. Ashley gave Zitzman similar instructions about how to enter the house, as he had with Kerr. Zitzman would later say that at first he thought Ashley was making a weird joke. But in the weeks after that conversation, he'd continuously asked Zitzman why he hadn't done the job yet, and he eventually realized Ashley was being very serious. Zitzman now found himself in a difficult position. His boss was pushing him to kill his wife, and he felt trapped, he said. 
On the 30th of July 2012, as dusk fell on Elam, Zitzman entered the house where Charlene lived through the window Ashley had told him would be open. He hid behind a couch from dusk until 3 a.m. in the morning. Eventually, he worked up the courage to start moving through the house looking for Charlene. He found Charlene sleeping in one of the beds with one of her children and claimed that the presence of the child put him off and he couldn't carry out the act. Zitzman left the house without carrying out the murder. He had eventually confessed what he'd almost done to his father, and the man had convinced him that he had to tell Charlene that her life was in danger. In August 2012, Charlene opened the door to Regan Zitzman and his father. The pair sat down, and haltingly, Zitzman explained to Charlene that she'd barely escaped death just nights before. Charlene was horrified. Ashley had been abusive, and of course she knew logically that in other cases she'd seen abuse did lead to murder, but she clearly never in a million years believed that Ashley would have put a hit out on her life. Can you even imagine how this must feel? You're just going about your day, when there's a lock on the door, and suddenly someone is describing how nights before they stood beside your bed as you slept with your young child, and you'd been within a hair's breadth of losing your life. And if that isn't scary enough, the person who wanted you dead is the father of your children, the man who claimed to love you and vowed to protect you for the rest of his life. And clearly, Ashley had no qualms about his wife being murdered in front of his own biological children, as well as Charlene's two sons. I think although the shock would have been intense and overwhelming, at this point Charlene's cop brain took over, and she asked Regan Zitzman if he would go to the police station with her and make a statement. Zitzman agreed. At that moment, Charlene realized that her marriage was undoubtedly over. Although she tried her very best to make it work, she now knew that her life was very literally at risk. She also couldn't guarantee the safety of her children if she allowed Ashley unfettered access to her. Charlene and Zitzman went to Elam police station and opened a case. Zitzman made a statement detailing what Ashley had asked him to do and what he had done. Charlene took out a protection order against Ashley October and started divorce proceedings. But sadly, absolutely nothing came of the case she'd opened with police at that time, and no action was taken against Ashley. For someone with enough gall to have attempted a crime this brazen, this inaction would likely have been a green light. He seemed to already think he could do whatever he wanted, and now it seemed the law was saying exactly the same thing. Charlene and Ashley's divorce agreements gave Charlene permission to stay in their house with the children. The proceedings would take three years to finalize, but eventually in 2015, the divorce was final. The ink 
was not even dry on the divorce papers, though, when Ashley married another woman, seemingly having moved on from Charlene without much thought. Or at least, that was how it appeared. Over the years that followed, Charlene remained on her guard with Ashley, although she had no choice but to communicate and interact with him to a certain degree because of their children. I have no doubt that Charlene would have believed that Ashley having remarried meant that she would no longer be the focus of his negative attentions, and for a long time that seemed to be the case. It was always clear, though, that Charlene having been given the house and the divorce was a particular bugbear for Ashley. He continued to keep his business going and did well enough, it seemed, to pay his bills. Very slowly, Charlene began to let him back into her life, little by little. She really wanted her children to have a good relationship with their father, and by December 2020, the pair were friendlier again. And when Ashley went through a financial dip and was looking to start earning another income, he made a proposal to Charlene. She had a spare room in the house that was not being used as her adult sons had moved out, and Ashley wanted to start a tuck shop in the room to service the local community. Charlene already sold takeaways out of her home as a side hustle, and he suggested that the two businesses would work well together, as people could buy other items while they were getting their takeaways. Having not had any major issues with Ashley for years, Charlene agreed. It's important to note, though, that this arrangement did not just increase the time that Ashley would be spending around Charlene, it also gave him far more access to the home she was living in. Alex and Alicia say that they were not happy when they heard about the arrangement. Although their sister seemed to have moved on from what had happened in 2012, they certainly did not trust Ashley at all, and weren't happy to hear that he would be spending so much time around her and in her house. Charlene insisted on formalising the arrangement, and it was agreed that Ashley would pay her a monthly rental fee for the room. Ashley also had sole access to the room. Charlene didn't want any questions about missing stock, and didn't want to be involved with the running of the shop at all, so Ashley was the only one with a key to a padlock he used to lock the shop up at 8pm each night. On Sunday, the 11th of July, 2021, Charlene's son Ethan was at his mother's house with his girlfriend throughout the day. He'd been helping to drive Ashley and one of his employees, Tashwell van der Rieda, to Strasby and back to collect fish for a braai Ashley had planned the following evening. At 8pm, Ashley locked up the shop and placed a padlock on the door as he always did. Ashley's daughter with Charlene had asked if she could sleep over at a friend's house that night, and their son decided to stay over at his dad's. Ethan and his girlfriend had a newborn baby who was just six weeks old, and as Charlene was going to be alone that night, she asked if she could babysit for them so that they could have an evening to themselves. Ethan and his girlfriend agreed, and they arranged that they'd collect their baby in the morning. Ethan kissed his mom goodbye and everyone pretty much left the property at the same time. At 8am the next morning, Monday the 12th of July 2021, 
Ashley October arrived at Ethan's girlfriend's home. He told Ethan that he needed him to come with him to his mom's house because she wasn't answering when he knocked and he needed to get in. Ethan needed to fetch his baby in any case and thought perhaps the infant had given his mom a difficult night and she was still sleeping, which is why she wasn't answering the door. He got in the car with Ashley and they drove to his mom's house. At the house, they knocked and called out for several minutes with no answer. Ethan began to worry when he heard his baby crying inside the house and there was no sign of his mom attending to the child. He told Ashley he was going to climb in a window at the back of the property. Ashley agreed it was a good idea and said he'd wait out front. Ethan climbed through the window and entered one of the bedrooms. There he saw his mom's slippers next to the bed, and the bed covers were pulled away from the bed as though someone had been sleeping and gotten up. His six-week-old baby was laying on the bed, crying. He picked the child up and started to call out for his mom, making his way from room to room. He noticed that the tuck shop door was open. A padlock was missing and items from the shop were laying scattered about. He hesitantly proceeded to the lounge, where he spotted a pool of blood. That is when he saw his mom. In that moment, the young man would likely have been terribly torn. His crying baby in his arms needed protection from whatever had just happened in that house, but the son in him crumpled at the sight of his mother. Charlene Yoster was dead. Her face and body were badly bruised, and a rope was tied around her neck, which was attached to another piece of rope higher up, which in turn was tied to a roof beam. As Ethan touched her, the rope snapped and her body fell to the ground. Horrified, Ethan ran to the front door and opened it, blurting out to Ashley that his mom was dead. Ashley October immediately ran inside the house and went straight to his tuck shop. He exclaimed that he'd been robbed, and then looked at Charlene in the lounge and shouted, My wife! My wife! Over the next few minutes, chaos ensued. Ethan flagged down a police officer and an ambulance was called. And quickly the news of the horrific discovery started to spread through Elam and to Charlene's family. Alexa Yoster was at work when she received the call. She recalls feeling as though she were in a haze as she travelled to Charlene's house. There she found police having already arrived on the scene. She saw Ashley, standing with the officer who would eventually become the I.O. on the case, Warrant Officer Francis Falkvane. Without hesitation, she walked up to the officer, introduced herself as Charlene's sister, and said, Officer, I just want you to know that this man, she pointed to Ashley October, tried to have my sister killed in 2012. You'll find the case at Elam Police Station. Small as Elam was, the local police officers had already informed Falkvane, who was based in Bradarsdorp, of this past history with Charlene. Falkvane acknowledged that he was aware of this and promised Alexa he would investigate all possibilities. 
Warrant Officer Falkvane had 33 years' experience on the day he arrived at Charlene's home to start investigating her death. He'd been informed that she was an ex-officer. Upon initially encountering Charlene's body and confirming that she was deceased, he stepped back and looked at the scene. Ethan had told him that the rope had been joined when he'd arrived, but it snapped when he touched his mom. At first glance, it would be easy to assume that this was a suicide, but the other evidence immediately had Falkvane thinking otherwise. Charlene had clearly been beaten about her head and face. In addition to that was the pool of blood just outside the lounge, and there were clear drag marks from there to where Charlene's body was found. It didn't take a highly seasoned detective to know that people who died by suicide generally do not injure themselves significantly enough to bleed that much and then drag themselves to another location before hanging themselves. It was very clearly staged. Falkvane noticed that the shop looked like it had been looted. He also immediately noted that the type of lock on the door required a padlock to lock it. He began looking for the lock. If someone had broken it open, it may have their fingerprints on it, and surely it would be laying discarded close to the door. But it wasn't. It was nowhere to be found. He also noted that there was no forced entry to the house, but remembered that Ethan had squeezed through a window at the back of the property to gain entry, so he had to consider that whomever had killed Charlene may have done the same. He was told that Charlene's cell phone, a tablet and a laptop were missing from the scene. His first order of business was to trace her phone, and he immediately put in a Section 205 request for the records. In the hours after discovering his mother's body, Ethan drove almost aimlessly around town in his grief, visiting friends and residents of Elam to inform them of his mother's passing. He would have no idea that two of the visits he made that day would play an incredibly important part in his mother's case. The first person he visited was Tashwell van der Reerde. The man had been at the house just the day before, of course, and Ethan thought he should know what had happened. Tashwell had known Charlene for many years. In his own words, he'd grown up in front of her, and Ethan said that when he arrived at Tashwell's home, the man seemed suitably horrified to hear that Charlene was dead. The second visit Ethan made was to his longtime friend, Manfred Kerr. As Ethan shared the horrific news with his friend, in the next room, Manfred's brother, Ashley Kerr, listened with a growing sense of dread. Although he told a few people about Ashley October's offer to him in 2011, a decade had passed, and now he wondered if it was really possible that the crime October had once had carried out then had finally taken place. Kerr did not immediately speak out, though. This would only happen after he was eventually convinced to do so by a family friend who was a police officer. At that point, no one knew about the 2011 attempt on Charlene's life, only about what had happened in 2012 with Zitzman. 
on Tuesday the 13th, Ethan needed to get some documents from his mother's house. He let himself in using the keys that had been given to him by police, and while there, he noticed something strange. The tuck shop had been padlocked closed again, but it was padlocked with the exact same padlock that had gone missing. He knew it was the same one because he'd seen Ashley lock the shop up many times, and the lock had marks on it that he was familiar with. Instinctively, he took a photograph of the padlock and sent it to Detective Falkvane. Charlene Eusta's body was taken to the mortuary and her autopsy was performed by Dr. Kruger. The pathologist soon confirmed what Falkvane suspected. This was no suicide. There were upward-facing ligature marks that Kruger would expect to see in a suicide, but those were mostly made post-mortem. Another set of ligature marks, which ran horizontally across Charlene's neck, told the real story of how she died. Charlene had been strangled to death, and then strung up. In addition to this, the pathologist found that Charlene had been badly beaten about the face before she was strangled. Devastatingly, pieces of Charlene's skin were found underneath her fingernails, and this matched up with claw marks on her neck. The doctor concluded that this had likely happened when Charlene was being strangled and she was attempting to get the rope off her neck. Although Falkvane certainly hadn't been waiting for this confirmation, it was a good solid backing to his existing belief that there'd been no suicide involved in Charlene's death. Soon the cell records he'd requested came in, and he was able to establish that Charlene's SIM card had been removed from her phone in the early hours of the 12th of July and placed into another device. That device was identified as belonging to Tashwell Funderida. Falkvane immediately went out to Funderida's home and located Charlene's SIM card. Funderida was arrested. During the initial interviews, Funderida denied any knowledge of Charlene's murder and insisted he'd found the phone in the streets and didn't initially know who it had belonged to. He said when he'd looked at it and realized it was Charlene's, He'd been worried people would think he'd had something to do with the murder, so he'd removed the SIM card and tossed the phone into a dam. The dam that Tashwell pointed out was searched, but the phone was never found. One of the things that was most interesting about the activity with Charlene's SIM card was that as soon as it was moved into Tashwell's phone, the first number that was phoned was Ashley October's. The man had not answered those calls, but Tashwell had phoned him several times. Although Charlene's family were horrified to hear the identity of the man who'd been arrested in connection with Charlene's death, someone they'd known as a family friend, they also still had a distinct feeling that there was at least one person who also needed to be arrested, but it would take some time to get to that point. The small town of Elam was equally outraged that one of their own may have played a role in Charlene's murder, and a petition was started to demand that Tashwell be denied bail. The first signatory on that petition was Ashley October. 
Protests were also held outside the court on the day of Tashwell's bail hearing, and October made a slow drive past the courthouse in his car with his children. When he drove past photographers, he slowed down and held a placard out the window demanding Tashwell remain incarcerated, and then he smiled for the cameras. On the day that Charlene was laid to rest, Ashley attended the funeral. He waited in line to view Charlene in her coffin, and when he looked at her, he began to wail loudly. He told her sisters that he would never keep the children away from them, and they were welcome to see them as often as they wanted to. And he told Charlene's elderly mother that he was very sad, and he would do everything he could to help solve the case. That would be the last time that Charlene's family would ever speak to Ashley October. Just days after Charlene's funeral, Ashley October was arrested for the murder of his ex-wife. Although Tashwell van der Reerde had initially pled not guilty and claimed to not have any information about the murder, in the days after he was denied bail, he'd had a change of heart. He told Detective Falkvain that he wanted to tell the truth. Van der Reerde admitted that in the days before Charlene's murder, when he'd started working with Ashley October, the man had approached him and asked him to kill his ex-wife. He'd promised him a large amount of money, but Van der Reerde said he'd refused because he knew Charlene too well and he'd never committed murder before. He told October that he would not be able to commit such a crime. Van der Reerde mentioned several different scenarios that October came up with, which would eventually match up closely with the scenarios he'd suggested to Kerr and Zitzman a decade before. Van der Reerde said that October continued to push him to commit the murder, and eventually he'd suggested that he could just come with him to Charlene's house and make it look like the shop had been robbed. He said October promised he would commit the murder himself, and Van der Reerde could just take whatever he wanted from the shop because he'd be able to put in an insurance claim for it. Van der Reerde claimed he didn't really believe Ashley was going to kill Charlene, but decided to agree to go with him because he was concerned he would lose his job. Van der Reerde went on to tell Falkvain that on Sunday the 11th, when he'd been at Charlene's house, just before he'd left... Ashley October had pulled him aside and told him in Afrikaans, Tonight, we kill this thing. Van der Reerde understood that the thing October was referring to was Charlene. That night, he said, he'd gone to Ashley's house at midnight and waited for him to come outside. Ashley had given him a key to the padlock and surgical gloves to wear. They then proceeded to Charlene's house, where Van der Reerde had stood watch while October gained entry through the window at the back of the property. He then called out to Van der Reerde to enter the property in the same way. When they were inside the house, Van der Reerde claimed he'd gone straight to the tuck shop and unlocked the padlock with the key he'd been given. He said that he'd started to make it look like the shop had been robbed by throwing items around, and at the same time he'd packed a box of items for himself. During this time, Ashley had come around the corner and dropped a cell phone into the box, 
telling Fanderiada to take that as well. Moments later, Fanderiada said he heard a scuffle and then heard Charlene shouting Afrikaans, get the fuck out of my house. He quickly finished packing and made his way back out of the window with the box. The next day, he'd heard that Charlene had been found dead. He said that Ashley October had approached him after the murder and told him that if investigators happened to make their way to him, he should take full responsibility for the murder, and Ashley claimed he would ensure that he was well taken care of in prison and had all the drugs and protection money he needed. Fanderiada claimed he told Ashley in no uncertain terms that he would definitely not take responsibility for a murder he had not committed. It was this statement that had resulted in the arrest of Ashley October. Tashwell Fanderiada had also agreed to testify against October. Although Tashwell had initially pled not guilty, at his next court appearance, he indicated that he wished to change his plea and entered a plea of guilty on charges of housebreaking with the intent to rob, housebreaking with aggravating circumstances, housebreaking with intent to rob and murder, robbery with aggravated circumstances, murder, and attempting to defeat the ends of justice. His guilty plea to murder was on the understanding that although he had not physically committed the murder, according to him, he had to have known that his role in the crime would contribute to the victim being murdered, and that his participation and failure to alert authorities had directly enabled her murder to take place. When Ashley October appeared, he pled not guilty to all of those same charges, as well as, in addition, conspiracy to rob and murder and incitement to rob and murder, which applied to the 2012 case, which had now been added to the current trial. October insisted that he was innocent and that Tashwell Fanderiada was lying. However, he chose not to provide any plea statements when he entered his plea and when the trial finally started, also chose not to take the stand or present any witnesses in his defense. It seemed his defense was very simply, if you think I'm guilty, prove it. And that is exactly what the state intended to do. The first witness on the list was Ashley Kerr, who testified about Ashley October having approached him to kill Charlene in 2011. The next witness was Regan Zitzman. When Detective Falkvane went looking for Zitzman to interview him about the 2012 attempt on Charlene's life, he found that the man was actually incarcerated. In a bizarre twist, a year before Charlene was murdered, Zitzman had been convicted of kidnapping, raping and murdering a six-year-old girl. Equally bizarrely, when I did a bit of research to confirm this piece of information for myself, I found that he'd also been convicted of raping a 12-year-old girl in 2017, but he was given a five-year suspended sentence, which is a shockingly light sentence, and clearly directly contributed to the murder of Dalvina Europa, the six-year-old girl in 2020. Of course, this had nothing to do with Charlene's murder, 
But if you consider that Zitzman claimed he hadn't murdered Charlene that night in 2012 because she was sleeping in bed with her child, it's so absolutely strange. I guess a lot can happen to a psyche in the five years between 2012 and 2017 when it seems Zitzman committed his first crime against a child. I do have to wonder if Ashley October had any type of terror runs through his veins when he realized that he'd enticed a pedophile to hide in his house where his children were sleeping. When Zitzman appeared for the state, he was in the process of serving two life terms for his crimes against Alvina Europa. He provided a similar statement that he had in 2012, and the judge would go on to accept him as a credible witness in the matter. October's defence attorney, of course, laid into both of the first witnesses and attempted to say that their drug use at the time that they claimed these events happened meant that they were not in the frame of mind to be clear on what was really happening and were likely delusional or simply lying. The state pointed out that the very fact that both men were drug users and that the man who eventually ended up committing the crime with October was also a drug user, proved rather that October had been very selective about the people he approached, and clearly only wanted vulnerable men he thought he could easily manipulate. Charlene's son Ethan testified next about the horror of finding his mother's body, how Ashley had behaved so strangely and didn't really show any emotion after the discovery how Ashley had been well aware that Charlene was going to be home alone that night, save for Ethan's six-week-old baby, who she was babysitting, and also how the missing padlock had magically reappeared in the days after the murder, and Ashley had been the only one with keys to the shop. Ethan's girlfriend also testified that she'd seen Ashley lock the tuck shop the night before the murder, and described the lock he'd used as the same one that had reappeared the day after Charlene was murdered. The state also called the forensic pathologist and several members of the SAPS, including Detective Falkvane, to testify. The case against Ashley October was entirely built on circumstantial evidence, but the evidence was so incredibly compelling that in 2022, the judge found him guilty on all charges. Tashwell van der Reerde was sentenced to 15 years in prison for his role in the murder. The judge took into account that he had eventually worked with police and helped to bring October to justice. She gave no such mercy to Ashley October, though. She said that he had clearly had no remorse for what he had done, and he had seen fit to rob his children of their mother and now, in essence, their father too. She acknowledged that he had very clearly set Ethan up to find Charlene's body that day, and that the image of that would likely never leave the young man's mind. The judge also called out the SAPS for not having followed up on the case in 2012. It had come to light that Ashley October had previously been involved in domestic violence incidents with other partners before Charlene, and this history, combined with tangible evidence that he'd attempted to arrange her murder, 
should have resulted in a proper investigation. Perhaps, if that had happened, she said, Charlene may not have lost her life. Ashley October was handed down a life sentence for the murder of Charlene, plus a total of 45 years for the other charges. The sentences are served concurrently, so the life sentence holds the most weight over how much time he will serve, with him becoming eligible for parole in 2046 when he is 64 years old. His attorney had indicated that he would appeal, but this has yet to move forward to my knowledge. Charlene's son, Ethan, broke down into tears upon hearing the sentence. The young man who'd been lured into witnessing what undoubtedly would have been one of the most horrific scenes of his life, and lost his mother to a man who really had signed up upon marrying his mother to play a father role in his life. And I think this is a really disturbing part of this case for me. Ashley October didn't just show a complete disregard for Charlene's life. He also showed absolutely no regard for Ethan's well-being and horrifyingly clearly didn't care that a six-week-old baby would be alone for many hours after he killed the child's grandmother. A baby at that age is incredibly fragile and vulnerable. The child was not secured in a cot and had been laying on the bed unattended for at least seven hours. At the rate a six-week-old usually needs to feed, the child would have missed at least two feeds. Anything could have happened to that baby. They could have regurgitated a bit of milk, and without someone to help, choking could easily have occurred. But Ashley October clearly didn't care. He made sure his own children were out of the house, although he hadn't seemed bothered by that on previous occasions, and everyone else, according to him, seemed to just be collateral damage. Charlene's family were extremely grateful for the sentence. It provided a point at which they could somehow begin to think about healing. But for this family, nothing will ever be the same. I take my hat off to any family members of murder victims who find the strength within themselves to appear on television programs about their loved one's murder. Watching Alexa and Alicia on the episode of Blut and Fleas, they honestly came across as an absolute force to be reckoned with. When Alexa speaks about the day of her sister's murder and walking up to the detective, pointing at Ashley and outing him for his 2012 attempt on Charlene's life. I can just picture the moment. I can picture her absolute outrage, devastation and horror. And somehow, I think in that moment, she was channeling the strength that she'd learned from her older sister. Charlene Eusta lived her life doing the right thing. She stood up for others, said things as they were, and didn't take any nonsense. And even though Ashley found one place in her he could manipulate for a while, she eventually did stand up for herself too. She divorced him, took out a protection order, 
and working around their shared custody of their children, did what she could to keep the man out of her life. Who could have known that Ashley October would be so absolutely brazen and filled with greed and self-interest that a decade later he could think that he would get away with the same thing? Ashley was going through a difficult financial period at that time. In their divorce, Charlene had been granted maintenance for the children and lifelong residence at the home she'd shared with Ashley, and he clearly decided that lifelong was not going to mean what she and her family thought it did. Charlene certainly would have thought lifelong meant she would die at a ripe old age, having lived many happy years with her children and grandchildren. But Ashley wasn't having that. And the incredible gall and callousness of this man in completely disregarding everyone he so deeply harmed forever with his greed and vicious actions is honestly terrifying. I am always grateful to have the honor of speaking with the family members of victims whose cases I cover on this podcast when they are comfortable doing so. It's an important reminder for me of the enormous responsibility and huge privilege I have in being able to share these cases with you. We decided to name this episode with Charlene's maiden name because as I've said in previous intimate partner murder cases, as far as I'm concerned, a man loses the privilege to have his wife bear his surname when they choose to murder her. Sometimes this doesn't fit for families and they prefer using the married name and that's absolutely their choice. In this case, Alicia agreed that Ashley October lost the privilege to have a woman as incredible as Charlene bearing his name when he chose to kill her. Charlene is not the woman he hunted for a decade and finally chose to kill. She will not be remembered as his victim or his wife or even his ex-wife. As I watch Alicia and Alexa talk about their sister, I understand that she will be remembered as an incredibly strong, intelligent and caring woman. One who loved unconditionally and sometimes didn't receive the love she deserved in return. And as I look at her two younger sisters, I have absolutely no doubts that she would be incredibly proud of them. They represent now what she had stolen from her. They've been her voice, and through them, I feel like I have met Charlene. And I hope you do too. My words about a victim are almost always a bit hollow because although I can get an idea of who they were from my research, that will never ever compare at all to the true connection a loved one has. So I'm always far happier to be able to share a family member's own words about their lost loved one with you, because in those words lies a truth I could never find in a million years' worth of research. So today... I'm going to close out this episode with Alicia Yuster's own words from her victim impact statement 
that she wrote as part of Ashley October and Tashwell van der Reerde's sentencing. Alicia Eurster, thank you for trusting me with your sister's story. I cannot change what has happened to your family, and you will forever live with that pain. But please do know that Charlene's story has deeply touched me, and I have no doubt will also touch every person who listens to this episode now and in the future. These are Alicia Eurster's words. Charlene, as in many typical working family homes, doubled up as the role of mother figure to us. We would often run to her when in trouble and in need of comfort. During my adult years, she was the person I spoke to that helped me through my divorce. We would connect as sisters and shared the same feelings of shame and disappointment together with the pain of a failed marriage. She paved the way for us to find our own voices, to be fearless while trembling in our boots, to be brave while not being too sure of what will follow next. Our family is broken. We are torn apart. We are happy with the verdict that this came as a result of my sister's death. The day before she died, she called all of us. Out of everyone, I never answered, and I am guilt-ridden. I know I can't change anything about that day, and I will learn to forgive myself for not answering her call. But my heart misses her and her presence. She made everything easier, a bit more bearable and she provided us with a safe, emotional space. Charlene Joester, rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, Please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.